Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, my name is Nathan Hobson, and I am a host for the New Books in Japanese Studies podcast, a member of the New Books Network. Today, I'll be talking with Dr. Timothy Benedict about his book, Spiritual Ends, Religion and the Heart of Dying in Japan, which is out from the University of California Press in 2023. Spiritual Ends is an exploration of spiritual care in the context of the Japanese hospice. The book is rooted in Benedict's own experience as a hospital chaplain in Japan and extensive fieldwork and interviews with patients, medical personnel, and other chaplains. The author problematizes the application of ideas about spiritual care and end-of-life care that are not necessarily well-rooted in the culture and life experience of Japanese patients. And he proposes that greater attention should be paid to the care of the heart slash mind or kokoro as a central concept for uh, attending to these needs. In this sense, spiritual ends contributes to a better understanding of the ways in which excuse me, specific beliefs and practices of religion, spirituality, and medicine affect both patients and their loved ones on the one hand, and the institutions providing end-of-life care on the other. All right, Dr. Benedict, thank you for uh, joining us. I know it's a little bit later in Japan, uh, so I appreciate you making the time. Uh, so I want to jump uh, directly into uh, the book here because I think uh, you set this up by talking uh, in the book about how you came to this project. Um, you know, a lot of our listeners, I think, are familiar with the idea that Japan is a highly secular society, at least in reputation, um, and also, of course, that it is an aging society, perhaps the most aged society in the world, uh, and that makes end-of-life a pressing concern, end-of-life care. Um, so you observe that uh, you know, a few, uh, only a few hospice patients express existential concerns, um, preferring to address the idea of, for example, becoming a burden on others or an inability to fulfill their social or family responsibilities, as you put it in the book. Um, and this poses some interesting questions for a hospice chaplain and for hospice services. Um, and this is uh, sort of where you seem to have come to the project. So I'd love to hear more about that. Uh, the question that you kind of ask in the book is, since most Japanese pray at a Shinto shrine, 
get married in a Christian chapel, lead a secular life, and have a Buddhist funeral, what role does religion play at the end of life? And more so, if most of the patients were not religious, nor particularly interested in talking about religion, why was I there? And that's the critical thing that I want, I'd want. i love for you to talk about, is the fact that you were there, and that that's kind of how we uh, get this book uh, about spiritual care and the hospice movement in Japan. Thank you, Nathan. Uh, please call me Tim, um, and I'm really delighted to be on this, uh, this podcast with you and for uh, this really excellent uh, question. And so, yeah, as you mentioned, the seeds for this research project were planted when I was a chaplain in a hospital in Osaka for a little over two years. And many of the questions that inform my book are basically uh, variations on the questions that I was kind of uh, struggling with while I was working there at the at the hospital. Uh, but it might be helpful if I back up just a little bit first to explain uh, how I ended up in this position in the first place, since it's kind of a, uh, a unique uh, job, if I say so myself. So uh, after I finished my, my master's degree in East Asian studies at Harvard, I knew I was interested in doing more research uh, on the subject of religion in Japan. But um, at that time, my interest was actually more along the lines of uh, religion and politics. Uh, my MA thesis was all about um, the relationship between the Kometo and the Sokagakkai in Japan. Um, and I didn't really have a clear idea of what I wanted to study uh, uh, in a PhD program. And this may be of interest to uh, listeners who are possibly grad students or prospective grad students. Um, but at this time, I actually applied for several PhD programs uh, with a kind of vague statement of interest in pursuing various topics about religion in Japan. But fortunately, I didn't get in <laughs> into any of the programs I was interested in. And looking back now, I'm actually very grateful and glad that I didn't. Uh, but I had to you know, decide what I was going to do next. And right around this time, I had a chance encounter with a retired Presbyterian missionary in Japan who was a close family friend. And so um, my parents actually uh, were missionaries, Protestant missionaries in Japan, uh, second generation missionaries in Japan. And so um, we had all these connections with different missionaries and he had worked at this Presbyterian hospital in Osaka as a chaplain for over 40 years. And uh, so, you know, I kind of knew about him and the, the work that he had, you know, been doing there. Uh, but when I ran into him one day, he asked me quite suddenly, uh, he said, Tim, how would you like to work at a hospital as a chaplain? Now, I had no idea what a chaplain's work re really entailed. And uh, I was really blown away, actually. Uh, but I was also very, like, super intrigued. Um, you know, I was interested in religion uh, in Japan. I thought, my goodness, like this is, I mean, uh, this is a really interesting, <laughs> this would be a very interesting job. And of course, um, I, I did, you know, have a kind of interest in that kind of work in the, in the first place. Um, I, I enjoy talking with people. And so, yeah, I, I thought this would be really, really uh an interesting thing to do for a little bit. And so I said, yes, basically I said yes on the spot, but um, I didn't have any formal uh, theological training or any kind of uh, chaplaincy certification 
to do this kind of work. But uh, at this point in Japan, and this is so this is back in 2009, uh, there was hardly any kind of chaplaincy certification program anyway. And basically, as long as I was, uh, as far as from the pos- from the hospital's perspective, as long as I was a, a committed Christian and had a letter of reference from this missionary who helped found the hospital, uh, this was basically considered enough. And so, so yeah, I took this position and I began working at the hospital. And basically, I had to learn everything from scratch. Uh, so I talk about this a little bit at the beginning of the book. But I really had no idea what I was supposed to do or how I was supposed to talk with patients and so forth. But the other amazing chaplains who were there at the hospital, who had many more years of experience, began to teach me on the job. Um, and yeah, there was a lot of challenges. Uh, I can still remember, you know, I would go visit a patient and, you know, knock on the door or announce myself from behind the curtain and say, oh, you know, hi, my name is, you know, Benedict. And I came from the chaplain's office. And there was usually just a very kind of quizzical look on their face or a blank, a very kind of blank stare. And uh, a couple patients would even say things like Chaplin, like Charlie Chaplin. And uh, they clearly had no idea who I was. Uh, and it, it didn't help, of course, that I uh, was uh, a foreigner. And so, I mean, that probably confused them as well. But uh, growing up in Japan, of course, I, I learned to speak Japanese um, and so, you know, there weren't, there wasn't any communication problem, but it was just, you know, not at all what they were expecting. Uh, but I mean, despite these kind of, you know, challenges, uh, every day of this job was really just so rewarding. And it was really one of the best things I've ever done in my life. Um, I got to talk with so many different patients and about so many different things. And really, I just learned from them. Um, and through this process, I realized that all my preconceptions about what spiritual care is uh, were wrong. <laughs> and there was really so much more to it than I had realized. But uh, I still had a lot of questions um, about how exactly spiritual care is supposed to be practiced in Japan. And this gets back to the question that you just raised, which is what exactly does spiritual care look like for a population that, for, I mean, for most of the population anyway, they do not consider themselves religious. So this is really how it all began. And after working there for about two years, uh, I knew that I really wanted to pursue these questions more and decided to go back to grad school. And this time I had a proper topic this time (laughs) that I wanted to pursue. And so I was able to get into uh, the PhD program at Princeton where I started to research this topic more earnestly. And so this is, you know, more background info, but if there are any grad student listeners out there, I just wanted to you know, let you know that sometimes you may not get into a program that you wanted to, but sometimes that can be for the very best. Yeah, it resulted in an extraordinary uh, opportunity, which uh, turned into a really, a really fascinating book. And, and thank you for sharing um, in some detail uh, what you go into also uh, in the beginning of the book, um, you know, that sort of personal journey uh, that got you mm-hmm. to um, the, the project that becomes Spiritual Ends. Um, so before we jump into the, uh, the sort of the heart of the book, the chapters, um, I wonder if you could just give us a little bit more of an outline about the state of hospice 
care in Japan. Um, and this term that we've been using, uh, spiritual care, uh, what exactly it means sort of in the general sense and also any specifics you'd like to add to that? Because of course, that's a, a big part of the, the sort of uh, theme of the books. I don't know how, like, we want to do the big reveal here or sort of, mm-hmm. you know, play that out over time. But yeah, so yeah, there, there's a lot to talk about. Um, let me start with the state of hospice care in Japan. And then I'll start to, um, yeah, start to uh, do my reveal of what exactly I, I, I mean by spiritual care. So hospice care in Japan, um, it started in the late 1970s, uh, or at least discussion of hospice care. Uh, I mean, hospice care as a kind of worldwide movement began in the 60s, uh, beginning in the UK and then North America and other places. But uh, the first formal hospice in Japan uh, was established in 1981 uh, at Seire Mikasahara which is uh, near Shizuoka. And since then, um, the number of hospice care facilities have grown uh, exponentially. Um, so there was really just a handful at the beginning. Uh, and, and then in 2021, which is the, the most recent statistics I have, uh, there were, were 456. And so, yeah, it's grown quite a bit. Uh, however, I mean, even though it's grown a lot, um, kind of looking at the broader context, um, roughly 65% of cancer patients in Japan still die in a hospital. Uh, and the number of patients who die in hospice are more like 13% or so like, and then of course people will die in other places, um, you know, elderly care uh, facilities and so forth. Uh, but so, I mean, the, the, the actual numbers of people who die in hospice care are still um, on the lower side, but it's, it is rising and it has been rising for a while. So uh, back in 2000, um, there was just uh, 2.5% of cancer patients were dying in hospice care. And that has grown. Uh, so 20 years later in 2020, it's, it grew by 10%. So it's 12.5% now. And so this number keeps going up. Um, and I should say that uh, hospice care in Japan, what it, what it looks like, um, because uh, I think people have different ideas of, you know, um, based on where you where you might be, hospice care looks a little bit different. Uh, for example, I know in North America, for instance, there's a lot of home hospice, and I think in Europe as well. Um, in Japan, home hospice is still, uh, still I mean, it's, it's there and um, it's growing, but I would say that the most uh, the ma- the majority of hospices are still kind of within ho- uh, hospital uh, institutions or facilities, so they're usually located within uh, a larger medical facility, and this includes uh, special wards uh, within the hospital uh, where they are where patients are given a kind of more home like environment, and sometimes they will have even tatami mat rooms or. Um, other things like that, that try to recreate this kind of home-like atmosphere within the hospital. Um, and of course, they have palliative care teams who are there to make sure that they receive a real holistic care with, you know, as, you know, fewer medical, you know, interventions as, you know, unnecessary medical interventions as possible. Uh, and some of these hospices, um, they may be located within a hospital. Um, when they can, they, all, they sometimes will locate it 
like just next to the hospital or in like a separate wing that's technically not part of the hospital building. And the reason for this is that actually gives them more freedom in terms of what they can do. For example, uh, in a hospital, you're not allowed to smoke uh, normally, but in a in a hospice, you know, sometimes patients, you know, they want to have a smoke and, you know, it's, it's very nice to have the freedom to let them do that or to let them drink alcohol and so forth. And so there are some kind of standalone hospices that um, can get around some of these uh, rules that uh, apply to uh, hospitals. So uh, that's kind of uh, gives you kind of a nutshell, it's a nutshell <laughs> glimpse of what hospice care looks like. Um, and in terms of spiritual care, let me just start by noting that about 13% of current hospices have at least one chaplain on staff. So uh, spiritual care is not, uh, you know, something that is present in every, uh, or spiritual care by a chaplain, let me put it that way, is not something that is, um, you know, in every hospice around Japan. In fact, you know, it's still a very minority uh, profession. Um, however, uh, there are, of course, many, you know, hospices without a chaplain, but they might have, for example, a volunteer cha- chaplain who comes occasionally, or uh, they might have a relationship with a religious professional in the community who might come in and, you know, visit and things like that. So um, it's kind of hard to get a real, uh, like kind of hard numbers on how many chaplains are out there and how many are actually doing the work. It's a very kind of fluid <laughs> uh, profession. Um, but, uh, there is now a very robust chaplaincy certification program, uh, with several hundred members, um, and they work all over Japan. And so, um, there, it's certainly becoming more and more, um, uh, accepted. All right. So, I mean, this kind of brings me then to the second part of your question, which is what is spiritual care, right? Uh, but. Maybe before I, I kind of give you my thoughts, and believe me, I have a lot of thoughts about this. Uh, if I could ask you uh, what your image of spiritual care was uh, before you read my book, um, that might be uh, that might help me kind of clarify what you know what is unique or not unique about uh, spiritual care in Japan. Right. Yeah, um, that's a that's an interesting question. Thank you for uh, the role reversal, putting me in the hot seat here. <laughs> um, we had uh, emailed a little bit. I said that uh, you know one of the reasons that I was particularly interested in talking to you about your book is that uh, my own father had home hospice care at the end of his life, uh, you know, fairly recently, um, and uh, you know, of course. I was in Japan most of that time and Norway the rest of that time. Uh, so I wasn't up close with that, but that's sort of the closest experience that I've had with hospice care. So, um, and I should also, I guess, say that my father was the sort of the type who would not have necessarily welcomed any religious uh, religion-based uh, spiritual care, but spiritual care and religious spiritual care are not, of course, the same thing. And so mm-hmm. I was thinking about these sort of, you know, existential issues of, um, the that that come with end of life care and and I, I I wondered you know sort of what the um, in the Japanese context of course uh, what to what degree there are um, direct discussions about um, you know either the feel, the life you're leaving behind or what comes after it and my suspicion before reading the book and I don't want to you know jump too much on the, the contents of the book itself was that the orientation for hospice care in Japan would have to be uh, more toward um, sort of 
wrapping up one's life um, in a way that didn't leave that feeling of uh, what in Japanese is called, you know, kokoro no kori, like leaving, like having a, a feeling of ha- mm. unfinished business, I guess, is, is maybe the, the best way to put that, that I can think of. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was kind of what I was expecting it to be. Um, but I was, I have to admit, I was a little bit surprised that there were religious chaplains involved in hospice care. So I, I my expectations were sort of thrown up in the air by that. Uh, so mm. that was where I came into the book. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, that's great. So, I mean, in, uh, North America, for instance, I think spiritual care is commonly framed as like a mixture of sacramental rituals like communion and prayer or Shabbat candles for those who request it, and also a kind of spiritual psychotherapy, right, that mixes religious wisdom with like counseling methods. Um, and more recently, it's more just uh, often the, the key word that is used is a ministry of presence, right? So it's not so much about, you know, providing some kind of religious consolation, but it's more about just, you know, uh, being there with them as they are going through this kind of journey, um, this final journey. Um, And so the emphasis of spiritual care is not just, you know, doing things for the patient, um, but also just to be with them, right? Um, There's this catchphrase in in chaplaincy where they talk about, and they say this in Japan as well, right? That it's important. uh, We need to focus on being, not doing. But although this, I think, describes a kind of idealized view of spiritual care, when you're actually in the ward and observing what chaplains are doing, uh, you quickly discover there's actually a lot more going on than this. And in fact, um, from my perspective, it it feels like spiritual care actually involves a lot more doing than actually being. (laughs) So this idea of, you know, the chaplain, you know, just sitting, you know, pensively beside the patient. And um, I mean, that certainly happens, but I feel like there's actually, um, there's a a lot more doing that's going on than that kind of being. Um, And this is why I ended up focusing on how care for the kokoro is really key uh, to uh, kokoro meaning heart uh, or mind uh, to understanding spiritual care in Japan. And by extension, I think other kind of secularized countries, uh, societies as well, right? So uh, basically what you were describing before about, um, you know, less of this kind of religious type of care and more of just, you know, helping people kind of wrap things up and uh, making sure that there's no kind of um, uh, loose ends, uh, so to speak, um, in terms of, you know, their relationships with their family or friends or, you know, things that uh, mean a lot to them. So, yeah, so that you know, that I I found that interesting. That right, there's um, I, I guess I kind of expected there to be more of an eschatological or ontological dimension to the care, um, at least you know outside of Japan, uh, and 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 that was a, a misunderstanding, which I, I, I you know obviously that's that has to be part of it, um, but uh, the emphasis being placed, you know, even in uh, non-Japanese hospice care on these sort of more uh, practical wrapping up sort of issues uh, was quite interesting. And I think the, the the point that you make about the balance between, you know, uh, being and doing, um, there's a, you know, there's a lot of uh, practical sort of details that need mm-hmm. to be dealt with at the end of life. And I, I suppose people must feel, you know, they don't have the kind of efficacy 
um, that they would want to have in, 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 in sort of handling those things, but also don't want to burden everyone else with them, which is something that you go into a great deal here in the Japanese context. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that, that was, it was quite interesting. You know, I had a, a lot of, I guess, misconceptions isn't quite the right word, but, but misunderstandings um, that, uh, yeah, that you're able to clear up sort of early in the book. Um, and this takes us into uh, the ethnographic fieldwork that you did as a uh, chaplain. And so I want to jump into chapter two, uh, which is called the rhythms of hospice care. Um, so one of the key arguments about the nature and practice of spiritual care that you're making um, about Japan specifically is that we have to pay closer attention to this word that we've uh, already thrown around a little bit, kokoro, heart or mind, um, as a key site where the affective dimensions of religious and non-religious identities are enacted. Um, So because this is a a sort of keyword, uh, and it is a word that doesn't map very easily onto either heart or mind, um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about the word itself, uh, what it means in the way that you're using it, and why it is such a focus for uh, the sort of arguments you're making um, about uh, improving care for Japan's hospice patients. Yeah, so uh, as you just mentioned, right, the the kokoro is very, very hard to translate. Um, you know, it's it can be the heart, it can be the mind, it can be the will, it can even be the self. Um, one of my favorite definitions is by uh, Thomas Kasulis, uh, who describes the kokoro uh, as a cognitive form of affective sensitivity, a cognitive form of affective sensitivity. And this definition really resonates with me. But before I explain why, um, I should note that I certainly, one of the things that I uh, was very, um, I wanted to be cautious about was, uh, I I don't want to kind of orientalize this concept of the kokoro. Um, And so it was was very important for me to notice the, the differences in the way that spiritual care is practiced in Japan but also to notice the ways that it's similar, right, to the way it's practiced in other cultural contexts. And so, I mean, the, the title of my book, um, you know, uh, <laughs> Religion in the, the Heart, the subtitle, Religion in the Heart of Dying in Japan, um, is a kind of play on the, you know, the whole genre of Zen and the art of, you know, dying or, you know, so forth. Um, but, you know, I didn't, want to go that route right and um many have already gone that <laughs> gone that route and so i didn't want to do that um but i i did so this is something i really struggled with was trying to find a good balance right because i think there is something you know different or you know um maybe even unique about the way spiritual care is practiced in japan but it, there's also a lot of things that are similar and so uh, i just want to say that um for example, I can remember talking to a, a chaplain in New Jersey uh, at a hospital in New Jersey, and I was explaining to uh, to her about what kind of care you know Japanese chaplains provide, and uh, she responded to me by saying, "Wow, that sounds exactly like what we do." <laughs> and so, you know, um, yeah, there's a lot of interesting um, uh, commonalities as well. But getting back to how the kokoro um, kind of encapsulates this both cognitive and affective uh, dimensions of spiritual care, um, let me say uh, first say that uh, the one reason I think spiritual care um, 
one reason the kokoro is so important in spiritual care is uh, because of the way religious identity is understood in Japan. And so, you know, many years ago, George Tanabe and Ian Reader in their book, Practically Religious, they talk about how there are both, you know, cognitive and affective expressions of religious practice in Japan. So as you know, while some Japanese subscribe to a kind of cognitive belief in a particular religion, you know, many more sincerely enjoy uh, affective participation in various religious traditions. And many people do both, right? And, and they don't, you know, there's no sense that this, there is some kind of conflict between these. Um, and because of this, you know, this, uh, the way that, you know, many Japanese kind of the, their kind of understanding of religious identity. Um, to me, the kokoro really, this word really nicely encapsulates both this cognitive and affective dimensions of religious identity, right? They're all kind of wrapped up together um, in this quote unquote non religious Japanese person. <laughs> uh, and so, this is uh, for me anyway uh, why it makes perfect sense that chaplains, you know, pay attention to care for the kokoro at the end of life as well. Uh, so when hospice chaplains offer spiritual care to patients, um, their work is uh, often focused on supporting the kokoro. Um, and this is usually done, uh, well, I shouldn't say usually, but it's often done through very you know mundane daily activities. And a lot of this is done to make patients uh, feel appreciated, uh, to help them feel valued, and this is um, a little bit different than, let's say, offering maybe like sacramental forms of care or other kinds of religious consolation that we might um, uh, imagine in other kinds of uh, more religious contexts. Yeah, I, I thought this was um, an interesting point that you make about that balance between um, identifying what is genuinely different uh, and then not exoticizing that. And I think you know, it's the, the problem that we have is that the definitions of culture that we use are uh, all sort of subtractive. They're based on the idea of difference itself, right? Mm -hmm. So. I, you know, of course, our listeners can't see, but you're sitting in a in an office, you know, at a, at a you know, on a chair at a desk with a computer, just like me, right? Mm -hmm. um, and yet, if you ask people, you know, are chairs and desks and computers Japanese culture, they'll tell you no, right? <laughs> like, like that, that's that's the sort of weird problem we have of just there's there's a there's a, a funniness about the way mm -hmm. we define that, and so you know navigating that's quite difficult. Um, and so I, I'm glad we we sort of uh, had that uh, moment here where we you know address what's actually an extremely difficult um, balancing act that we all have to do. Mm -hmm. um, so. This this relates to uh, in, in, an interesting thing that um, is is the topic of uh, chapter four, uh, which is the meaning of spiritual pain, right? Because if if our ideas about spirit or kokoro or soul or whatever mm -hmm. it is that's sort of that fundamental defining um, epistemological us, you know, me, uh, th if that's different, then the pain it experiences is, is obviously going to be different um, in some meaningful ways, but also not in other equally meaningful ways. And so in this chapter, you're exploring uh, whether and how the majority of Japanese hospice patients search for meaning at the end of their lives. Mm -hmm. uh, so the patients and the chaplains that you interviewed confirmed that many patients 
don't seem to experience much anxiety about death itself, um, because among other things, there's that, you know, shikata ga nai, it cannot be avoided sort of attitude. Uh, that's life, you know, mentality. But what does that actually mean for the practice of hospice care and sort of for the theoretization of what's necessary? Um, and what does the Japanese case suggest about what you call the clinical category of spiritual pain, which underpins the idea of hospice care, at least in its origins? Yeah, so this chapter was uh, a really hard chapter to write. I really struggled with it. <laughs> and the reason is, you know, and you've already kind of hinted at this, uh, on one hand, you go into the hospice and, you know, you talk to patients and it seems at first that very few patients even understand what spiritual care is, right? Like the word spiritual in Japanese, spiritualu, right? It's, it's, uh, it's not a word that is used, you know, in daily conversation, I would say. I mean, most people probably have heard of it and they, you know, kind of have some impressions about it, but especially when you're talking with older patients, you know, people who are in their 80s and 90s, it's not something that they would, you know, normally talk about. And so, first of all, that, you know, it's the whole, from the very beginning, the, <laughs> this kind of idea of spiritual pain is, you know, it's a category that, you know, you can't, it's really hard to make intelligible to the very, you know, the informants or, you know, the patients that I'm talking with. Uh, and so the practice of spiritual care um, really begins with the chaplain really trying to explain what kind of work they are doing. And I mean, I remember when I was a chaplain, I'd be visiting patients in the hospice and they would, you know, sometimes ask me like, like, are you sure you're okay to like, just be here? Or like, don't you have any other work to do? Like, like very, very worried, you know, on my behalf that I was shirking my, you know, some other job in the hospital. Um, and, you know, I had to explain, no, this is my job, you know, my job is, you know, visit with patients, see how they're doing and so forth. Um, but this is one reason why it can be very hard to detect spiritual pain, right? So just to give you a quick contrast, uh, when I was visiting a chaplain uh, in, the, in a hospital in the U.S., I was chatting with him in the hospital cafeteria and a woman walked by and you know, she just kind of interrupted our conversation and asked him like, oh, are you the chaplain? And he's like, yeah, you know, I'm the chaplain. Oh, you know, my son, you know, he just came out of surgery. He's on the fourth floor. Do you think you could go visit with him and maybe pray for him? And oh, yeah, sure. Of course. You know, uh, you know, this is very natural. And, you know, it was, I mean, she knew who he was just from a distance. You know, she knew what he was there to do. And, you know, she, it, you know, there was is a completely different kind of understanding of spiritual care. I mean, this kind of conversation would never happen uh, in Japan. So the very first factor that kind of mitigates against uh, this expression of or detection of spiritual pain in Japan is simply the unfamiliarity of patients with the very idea of sharing these quote unquote spiritual concerns with a stranger. <laughs> uh, and so this is, uh, you know, one reason why it's really hard to kind of come up with a, you know, a proper category of, of uh, what spiritual pain is. Um, but there's another reason why it was very hard to kind of uh, unpack this category of spiritual pain in Japan. And that's because so many patients uh, come now into the hospice in such serious condition that it's really hard to have a conversation with them. Um, and so when hospice, you know, care began in Japan, you know, several decades ago, 
it wasn't uncommon for patients to be in the hospice for like a month or two. And, and over that time, they would have, you know, many chances to build trust with the staff and get to know the chaplain. And then as their condition got more serious, it, you know, made it more likely that they could, you know, maybe even share some of their kind of uh, existential concerns, like, you know, you know, you know, what's, what meaning does my life have now? Like, you know, um, was it, you know, was my life really worth it? Or I'm, you know, I'm really scared of, you know, what's going to happen next and, you know, things like that. And, um, you know, this is where it would be, you know, the, the chaplain could usually step in and try to, you know, support them in whatever way they could. But I mean, right. At this, in the present day, most, uh, patients, when they come into the hospice, it, they tend to be, you know, at the very, very end of their, you know, life. And part of this is because medicine has gotten so good. Um, and so, you know, whereas before people would give up on, uh, uh, for example, chemotherapy or other treatments quite early because of just the side effects were so bad. But now with kind of advanced drugs, it's quite, it's easier now to to take away the side effects of treatment. And so people will elect to do treatment much later um, until you know, really until the very, very end. Um, but then that means that when they come into the hospice, they usually just have a week or two left. And so many of times they can't even talk, they can't swallow, they, you know, they're struggling to breathe. And so uh, this is, this completely changes the, <laughs> the, the reality of like this category of spiritual pain, right? Because, um, you know, if you are going to kind of make the, the case for, the need of spiritual care, it has to reflect the reality of the patients who are there. And when the reality of, you know, the, the condition of patients is, has changed um, or it continues to change, um, the kind of definition of spiritual pain also uh, tends to change. Um, and then let me just mention one other th- uh, kind of factor that, uh, and this is similar to the, the first one uh, that uh, mitigates the kind of detection of uh, spiritual pain. And this is a, a, a suspicion towards religious professionals in general. So not only are patients unfamiliar with, you know, the idea of spiritual care and chaplains and so forth, uh, in many cases, they may even feel suspicious of any kind of religious professional who shows up at their bed saying that, hey, you know, I'm here, I'm willing to listen to whatever you want to talk about. Um, one of the, this is just a, a little digression, but one of the funny stories uh, I heard uh, from a Buddhist chaplain was when he showed up in his uh, his Buddhist robes or his kesa, uh, and the patient, you know, looked really shocked when he came into the room and said, "No, you're too early." <laughs> um, the joke being that, you know, Buddhist priests are kind of funerary specialists, and so um, you know he's not supposed to come until at least his funeral. And so this is, you know, another kind of mitigating factor that keeps chaplains from being able to approach patients in a way that allows for open conversation. Uh, incidentally, it's precisely because of this problem that uh, most of the Buddhist priests I, you know, encountered in hospices in Japan, they would choose not to wear their kind of traditional Buddhist clothes, but would rather wear like a polo shirt or something less uh, ceremonial. Uh, okay, so that was a little bit of a digression, but having said all of, of the above, um, what was really interesting to me was that almost all the chaplains I spoke to 
uh, they would admit that, yes, you know, for all these reasons, it's very rare to have patients, you know, ask us for, you know, help with existential, you know, problems and so forth. Um, but they were also equally adamant that even if patients were not openly discussing existential or spiritual anxieties with them, they could still be experiencing some kind of deep spiritual pain. And so as I was trying to grapple with this tension, um, and I don't think I was able to successfully resolve it uh, by any means, um, I try to just capture both sides of the of this. And so on one uh, from one perspective, from a, let's say, suspicious or even cynical perspective, you could say that, you know, maybe those who are involved in spiritual care a little bit, you know, maybe a little over eager in making the case for, you know, spiritual pain in patients or, you know, spiritual anxiety. Uh, in other words, because many religious professionals are invested in trying to create a place uh, for themselves, uh, right, within the medical team or even to justify their job to other members of the hospice, it might be that they, you know, see spiritual pain in places where it actually might be something totally different. But uh, from a more charitable perspective, and based on my, you know, many interviews with chaplains, I am a little bit more sympathetic towards this perspective. Uh, chaplains would say that indeed, you know, there are many mitigating factors that prevent uh, chaplains from being able to offer the kind of direct spiritual care that, you know, I encountered in that, you know, like the American hospital cafeteria, like that type of uh, care. Um, but they would say if these, you know, some of these factors were removed, it might actually be easier for chaplains to connect more with patients. And it's possible that uh, patients who say, you know, oh, it can't be helped, they might actually be able to ask for and receive help and say, you know, if they thought that they could actually be helped by somebody. Uh, so this was the this kind of back and forth, you know, <laughs> uh, this tension that was um, very difficult to resolve. Um, and as far as uh, spiritual pain goes, let me just say a few words about my kind of take on this on this category. So while a lot of the literature on spiritual care is devoted to trying to define spiritual pain, uh, in my book, I give up on that project pretty quickly. Uh, one reason I don't try to explain or give a definitive explanation of what spiritual pain might be in Japan is simply because the category just doesn't map onto what patients seem to be feeling or how patients talk about their end-of-life anxieties. Uh, in fact, I would suggest that there's actually a very strong danger of spiritual care and spiritual being uh, spiritual pain being even uh, over medicalized. <laughs> so, you know, while hospice care was initially conceived as a type of holistic care that didn't distinguish between, you know, the spiritual or the psychological or the social or the physical dimensions of care for a patient, what has had you know what has in fact happened as the hospice movement has grown is that there is, you know, more specialization within the hospice where different team members focus on, let's say, the physical or the social or, you know, their social workers and their, you know, clinical psychologists. And then there's the spiritual, you know, specialists, right, the chaplains. Um, but in my view, this actually kind of undermines the whole ethos of hospice care, which is to treat patients as a whole person, right? And so personally, I'm not a really big fan of this idea of spiritual pain, uh, I mean, suffering is a part of life. And so I'm actually very sympathetic to the patients who, you know, um, are kind of 
bemused by this <laughs> by this kind of care, right? Because um, there are, in fact, many patients who can just accept that fact that, you know, there is suffering in life and actually, you know, be at peace with it, right? And they may not, you know, necessarily uh, need anything more beyond that. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, that's, that's, that's an interesting sort of uh, point that you're making about the... Um, acceptance of suffering and its relation to the possibility or re- reality of um, spiritual pain. Because, you know, in part, for, for me, that's interesting because, uh, you know, this is one of the places where I think Buddhism has the diagnosis absolutely right that, you know, life is life and attachment to life is suffering and we're all attached to life and we all suffer. Uh, and there's a, a sort of you know, part of that is as part of not the religious necessarily, but the sort of secular background of a shared mainstream Japanese culture is is that kind of understanding, right? An understanding that's based in that kind of milieu, um, and that's actually a place where um, there's you know again there's there's one of these interesting overlaps, right? Mm-hmm. There's one of these interesting um, uh, uh, places, the nexuses of um, where where understanding I think can happen. Um, and, and I also, but I wanted to take us back to uh, what you called a di- digression, but I, I don't think it really is. It's actually more of a segue, if you'll if you'll let me use it that way, into the the next two chapters, um, the invention of Japanese spirituality, which is chapter five, and then making healthy religion, which is chapter six. And this here, you're giving a sort of larger uh, socio historical perspective in these two chapters on um, post nineteen forty five and especially more contemporary society in its um, struggles with uh, religion, right? Whether that be uh, how do we feel about religion after 1945? Um, and then how do we feel about religion, especially after 1995 and the Om mm-hmm. Shibiko cult and all the, and you know, the, we're, we're sort of, there's, a, there's some skepticism about the new religions before that. And then there's, you know, all makes uh, a sort of breaking point. And of course, you know, as we're talking, um, there's all sorts of uh, issues related to religion that are going on um, in Japan right now, whether mm-hmm. it's the Jehovah's Witness thing, uh, Okao Ryuho dying yesterday as we record, uh, the founder of the Happy Science, Kofuku no Kagaku, and of course, uh, the assassin uh, of uh, Abe Shinzo and the relationship or non-relationship to the so-called Moonies, the Unification Church. So there's all sorts of you know ways in which Japan sort of struggles to... Um, over the course of the post-war period to mm-hmm. uh, deal with, to relate to, to understand how religion should be part of society. Um, and maybe in, given the way the conversation is going, it might make sense to sort of put these two chapters together and think about them together. Because um, in chapter five, you're you're looking at that ongoing struggle to define spirituality, to invent spirituality, um, and to think about how that domestic discourse about the spirit and spirituality is interacting with international discourses. And then in chapter six, making healthy religion, you're really looking at the sort of more institutional religion side of that, which is not necessarily the same thing, of course, as spirituality and thinking about how 
especially the two the two major religions, Buddhism and Christianity, have uh, acted in society um, in in modern Japan. So I don't I don't know how you want to sort of uh, disentangle that, but it seems you know from from where we are that it makes sense to sort of look at those two things um, as you know uh, in partnership with each other. Thank you. Um... Yeah, how, let me think here how I can uh, try to get at both of these. I mean, I, you're absolutely right. They, you know, it's, they're all connected. Um, let me start with uh, the chapter five first. So the invention of Japanese spirituality. Uh, so can I talk about McDonald's for just a bit? Um, <laughs> By all means. <laughs> so, I don't know. This is many years ago. But do you remember when there were... Uh, uh, a bunch of burgers at Japanese McDonald's that were named after different states in the United States. Do you remember this? I they do had a not. Texas, Texas burger. Really? They had a Miami burger. They had an Idaho burger. <laughs> oh, wow. I, I have this terrible feeling I'm, I'm about to hit an internet rabbit hole, but no, I do not remember this. <laughs> okay. Well, this is, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago or so, but um, each of these burgers, <laughs> and believe me, I'm going to get back to spirituality in a second. Um, each of these burgers had some kind of ingredient in it that they associated with those states. So the Idaho burger, of course, had potatoes in it. Uh, the Texas burger has some kind of barbecue sauce or something i forgot and i think there was also like a new york burger that had pastrami or uh, anyway they had all these kind of crazy ingredients that fit the preconceptions that japanese had about different parts of america and the reason i bring this up is because uh i think this is really illustrative of the way that cultural borders are sites of friction and production uh so when we think about the hamburger which is you know a very American food being imported into Japan, um, there's all kinds of new things happening. And I don't mean just making the hamburger more palatable. Um, it also includes creating kind of versions of America within Japan. <laughs> and so I see the term spirituality as doing something similar to this. And let me see if I can explain why. <laughs> uh, you, mean, you mean why it's the same as a pastrami burger? <laughs> exactly. Okay. <laughs> So in Japanese, of course, the word spirituality is left uh, in katakana, uh, syllabary, to signify that it's a foreign word. And there's a lot of literature within Japan, you know, kind of unpacking this term. And many, many, many spiritual care practitioners have tried to define it by either tracing its original meaning within English or other languages, um, or sometimes, you know, coming up with new ideas of what, you know, spirituality might represent. But an, an easy example of this the way this term spirit, you know, spiritual or spirituality um, is kind of going back and forth across these cultural borders um, can be seen in the work of uh, D.T. Suzuki, uh, who was one of the first Japanese to try to define spirituality in Japan in the early 20th century. So uh, Suzuki, he describes um, spirituality in Japan um, through the word deise, uh, which later became associated with uh, spiritualism or supernatural phenomena. And so by the time the hospice movement came along, um, rather than using the word deise, which is actually a more direct translation of you know, the word spiritual, um, they ended up discarding it because it had uh, too many other connotations, um, uh, connotations with like spiritualism and kind of uh, things like that. And so 
all this baggage that came along with the term spiritual uh, kind of distracted uh, the practitioners from what their imagined version of what spirituality is or should be. Uh, but interestingly, uh, D.T. Suzuki had a great influence on Western thinkers as well in the early 20th century. And, you know, so uh, he was quite influential on, you know, the work of Carl Jung and Eric Fromm and, you know, so forth. And so uh, the work by, you know, like, for example, Fromm and uh, Jung, of course, played a key role in the development of psychotherapy in Europe and the U.S., which then heavily influenced the clinical pastoral education or the CPE curriculum that is currently offered to chaplains who work in North America. So I talk about this in the book, but one Japanese chaplain I know visited the U.S., and while he was there taking part in the CPE curriculum, he told me that a lot of what he was hearing felt vaguely familiar. And later he realized that a lot of the ideas about helping patients with self-realization and so forth were you know, reminiscent of the Zen Buddhist emphasis on the awakening of self um, and other ideas that uh, were espoused by, you know, D.T. Suzuki. So you can kind of see how this category or concept of spirituality is not, it's not just something that was imported into Japan um, and, you know, just kind of served on a plat on a platter, <laughs> so to speak, since we're going with the food metaphor here. But it was, you know, it was a concept that was going back and forth, right, across cultural borders. And in and in the process, you know, when it goes across these kind of cultural borders, it it usually creates something new. Um, and so having said that, my own perspective on this term spirituality is that it's essentially an empty signifier. And of course, this is, you know, not anything new. I'm not saying anything that hasn't already been said by, you know, scholars of spirituality in the U.S., for example. But I think it's even more the case in Japan where the word spiritual is left in katakana quite intentionally as a kind of, you know, tabula rosa for, you know, spiritual care practitioners to really inscribe uh, almost anything they want onto this concept. And so as an empty or floating signifier, it's really convenient for showing one's distance from religion uh, as we find in the phrase, you know, spiritual but not religious. But in the case of Japan, it also sometimes shows the opposite, right? It can actually show proximity to religion. So um, uh, some, sometimes they'll say the, the word spiritual has shūkyō no niyoi garu, so it has the smell of, of religion, right? Uh, without directly referencing it. And so I see this idea of spirituality as something that's really been negotiated by different stakeholders within the hospice, uh, uh, among religious professionals and even academics who would like to see religion play a more active role in society, uh, or those who feel that religion is dangerous, right? And it should always be bracketed in the hospice context. And so in the book, I really try to uncover this back and forth and all the different ways that spirituality has been quote-unquote, invented in Japan, um, and how it's much more helpful to think about the different ways that people are using the word spirituality. Like, what are they trying to invoke, right? Um, or how are they, you know, distancing themselves or trying to get closer to religion and so forth, rather than trying to treat it as spirituality as some kind of third space that is neither religious or secular. And so I'm not sure if I was able to make the connection between the, the hamburgers and this idea of spirituality, but um, this is, you know, it's a very, uh, yeah, there's a lot of just, uh, 
I'm more interested in not, I'm not interested in the hamburger, so to speak. Um, <laughs> I'm more interested in, you know, you know, why, why do they imagine that, you know, a hamburger in Idaho would have potatoes on it? Um, and what does that say? Right. And what, what can we learn from that? And so that was where I ended up trying to focus on our, that's my own kind of approach to this. And that takes me then into the, the next chapter about making healthy religion. And so, um, the, in this chapter, I really tried to show the kind of longer history of, of religious engagement in medicine. Uh, and the reason I wanted to do this, I mean, there's several reasons, but uh, one you know, quick reason is there is a kind of tendency to, um, to depict uh, engaged Buddhism as a kind of recent phenomenon, as something that you know, has been happening in you know, the late 20th century or something like that. But uh, I really wanted to show that you know, the Buddhists have been engaging in you know, uh, medical environments from very early on. Um, even in the you know the late Meiji period and so forth, uh, but it's also important. The, this this historical context is also important because it really did have an important impact on the way hosp- hospice um, or the spiritual care movement took place in Japan. Um, and let me just give two ways that that happened. Um, the first is uh, because so many uh, Christian hospitals were founded. By medical missionaries in the early part of the 20th century, and even in the post-war period, actually as well, um, this kind of directly uh, led to a very strong Christian imprint on hospice care in Japan. So, uh, I mean, the I mean, the hospice movement started with uh, Cicely Saunders in the UK, and she was also, you know, uh, a Christian. And so, you know, from the very beginning, it had a very strong Christian overtones. But um, what's interesting in Japan, of course, is that, you know, the population of Christians is less than 1%. And so it's kind of, you know, strange that you would have, you know, uh, Christians playing such a big role in, in end-of-life care. Uh, I think the first of the first five hospices that were founded in Japan, four of them were Christian hospitals. Uh, and so this is one way that this kind of history um, is had an impact on uh, spiritual care. But the second uh, way was this, um, let me go ahead and jump to 1995, <laughs> if that's okay. Um, because the, the Omushinikyo, you know, uh, sarin gas attack on the subway uh, really had a huge uh, influence on public perception of religion in Japan. And I mean, many scholars have written about this already, so I won't you know, go into it in too detail, but uh, let me just mention one chaplain that I interviewed who said that prior to 1995, uh, when she would explain kind of her work to patients, she wasn't, uh, she had no qualms introducing herself as someone who provided religious care to patients. But after 1995, uh, when there was more of an atmosphere of kind of fear or suspicion towards religion. She began to shift um, and she, she would not use the word religion anymore. And she would tell patients that she provided kokoro care. (laughs) Um, And so I think uh, that was kind of a really important moment that uh, really 
changed uh, the trajectory of spiritual care in Japan. But it also had a kind of, I mean, in some ways it made it more difficult for religious professionals to to engage in medical care, but it also provided, uh, I think, motivation as well uh, because there was, for example, you know, many religious professionals who kind of had a sense like, oh, this is, you know, a real kind of, uh, you know, PR crisis here, <laughs> you know, um, you know, we're, we don't want to be lumped together with, you know, uh, you know, religious terrorist organizations. And so there was a, you know, very strong sense that, you know, public trust needed to be regained. And um, 1995 was also the year of the earthquake, uh, the Hanshin Awaji uh, earthquake, which sparked a very big volunteer movement in Japan. And they changed the the laws so that it would be easier for, you know, NPOs to make volunteer, volunteer organizations. And so then religious groups became much more involved in these kinds of activities um, as a way to, you know, show their their worth to society to show that they could play this healthy role in Japanese society. And uh, I mean, obviously, you know, some of this was, you know, to regain trust, but I mean, a lot of it was, you know, part of their, their religious mission as well. Right. So whether it be Buddhists or Christians, they were, you know, they felt like they needed to, you know, part of their, um, you know, their doctrines or so forth, you know, their teachings, you know, emphasized, you know, going out to care for those who need, you know, uh, help. And so going into, let's say, a hospice to help people, uh, you know, uh, deal with, you know, spiritual anxieties was a very natural kind of, uh, it, there was a lot of attraction for, for religious groups to enter that kind of space and to, to try to help in whatever way they could. Yeah, so so this was um, uh, it was interesting for me to sort of see 1995 as um, such a, a, a critical turning point um, for uh, the relationship of uh, religion to society, quite in in the sort of way that you're describing it as uh, in the history of the hospice movement. Um, I want to jump to your uh, last chapter, which is called Appropriately Last Thoughts. Um, and I th- we, we've touched on some of the questions that I had about this, but I wonder if I could um, ask you to maybe elaborate a little bit on uh, a sort of question that I had throughout, because uh, in, in the book, um, you point out that contemporary spiritual care is not framed by the explicitly soteriological concerns that Buddhists and Christians have uh, traditionally subscribed to in their care for the dying. And I think we've you know, really uh, dealt with that uh, a, a great deal. Um, and, and this was um, something that uh, you know, was very much on my mind as I was reading. Um, if, if that's not the case, right? Um, and if you're not comfortable, I guess, with this idea of spiritual pain, um, and if it, you know, in, in quite the way it's often defined and, and used, um, where, where are we with, uh, with the sort of state of um, hospice care? Um, and going back to your idea about the kokoro as, as a kind of uh, key word and key concept for um, understanding the needs of uh, Japanese hospice patients. Um, so what, sort of where are we and, and what are you thinking about? And, um, and, and have you uh, begun to sort of move beyond this book and do further research in this area? Yeah, so excellent question. So, I mean, in terms of, you know, how do, you know, where are we at, right? And 
this is, you know, a question that uh, I think a lot of chaplains grapple with a lot. Um, and I think, you know, any honest chaplain would say that, you know, they they really don't know what they're doing <laughs> in many ways. It, it feels like, you know, um, there's it's there's no, you know, unlike medical care um, or other types of care, there's no real clear goal. Right. So it's very hard to see, like, what 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 is it that we're trying to do? And some, you know, would say that that's exactly the point. Right. Like that. This is not something that, you know, we can put into words. It's not something that we you know can outline and, you know, have a plan and explain in real simple ways. It's the whole thing is gray. Right. <laughs> it's very gray. Um and I think that, you know, uh, many chaplains certainly have, uh, there's always a, a slight fear that in their eagerness to help patients achieve uh, a peaceful and meaningful death, um, there, there might, they might see spiritual pain where there's none, or they might try to offer some kind of spiritual care that is actually unwanted. Um, but while... I think there are isolated cases of this um, that may occur on occasion. In my experience, I think it's actually quite rare. In fact, I would venture to guess that um, many chaplains probably overly err on the side of caution in the way they they deal with patients. Uh, And we actually find this in other places as well. So um, Wendy Kaj has written a book about uh, spiritual care in the U.S. uh, And she notes that you know, Christian medical workers are actually more likely to talk in a straightforward way about religion with patients than chaplains. Uh, And this is because uh, the chaplains are more kind of cognizant of their position and always feel like they need to be cautious about bringing up religious topics with with patients um, without any kind of invitation from the patients. And in fact, I, and this is, this happens in Japan as well. And in fact, I just had a conversation with a chaplain uh, just uh, a few weeks ago, and he told me about a patient he had who uh, had this very strong sense of not wanting to be a burden on anyone. And so this is something I talk about in the book, right? A lot of patients in Japan feel this, um, uh, not wanting to cause meiwaku or be kind of a burden on anybody. Um, and so this chaplain was telling me about this patient and um, she was keeping all the medical staff, including the chaplain at a very, you know, at a distance basically. Um, and as she explained it, she said she would rather die than be a burden on those who are around her. <laughs> and of course she, you know, she was dying, but uh, she would rather die sooner than to be a burden on those around her. Uh, and this chaplain told me he, he sensed that by keeping her distance, um, you know, and he'd been, he had been working as a chaplain for, you know, maybe 20 years or so. So, I mean, he had a lot of experience. Um, he sensed that she was, there was a sense that she was trying to hide her loneliness or perhaps even maybe she had, you know, he didn't know for sure, but it's, it, it was possible that she might have some kind of, you know, fear of death that she didn't want to talk about, right. That she wanted to keep to herself. Um, and so, I mean, you could say that this is a kind of a spiritual pain, um, but ultimately, I mean, he respected her wishes, right? And so this is how she wanted to, for her, this, it was more important, uh, you know, even if she was suffering from some kind of spiritual pain, it was more important to respect her belief in and desire for self-sufficiency, which she valued more than anything, right? And so uh, he, you know, he kept his polite distance and, you know, of course he didn't, you know, try to, 
you know, you know, presser or anything like that. Um, and she passed away about a week later. And, you know, until the end, she was able to do it on her own, right? That was an important, uh, you know, that was important in her life up until then. And it was important to her, um, you know, even as she was, you know, there in the hospice. Um, but I'd like to say maybe, um, while I spend a lot of time in the book explaining how many Japanese do not seek out spiritual care, uh, I don't want to give the impression that the kind of that the kind of traditional religious type or existential type of uh, counseling that you know we may, many times imagine to be kind of the core of spiritual care doesn't exist at all. In fact, um, it is there, um, and you know, and I don't want to give the impression that it's not there at all. Um, I think maybe I. I might have been a little bit, you know, emphasize the other aspects of care as a way of kind of compensating for the vast majority of literature, which tends to focus mostly, right, on the kind of more extreme uh, versions of spiritual care. I mean, as when I say extreme, I mean, like, people who, you know, can, you know, uh, you know, grasp the chaplain's hand and said, please, you know, help me, I, you know, I, I need something to, you know, to, you know, help me get through this or, you know, uh, something like that. And so, uh, you know, the traditional kind of Christian or Buddhist soteriological, you know, soteriological values that can inform kind of the more religious, the religiously inflected forms of spiritual care, um, they can certainly have, you know, great benefit for patients. Um, and so I, I talk about this a little bit in, one, um, in, my, in, in the book, uh, so, for example, there are always some patients who ask chaplains to give them something to hold on to, right? They they want to hold on to something that um, that transcends their death. And whether that be, you know, God or rebirth in the pure land or whatever, um, they, they, they sometimes, sometimes they feel like, you know, um, I just can't do this on my own, right? Um, they, they, they they um, just kind of hit their limit. <laughs> um, and so while I spend a lot of time in the book explaining how, you know, most Japanese don't openly show strong existential concerns, I mean, there are many, many exceptions and the kind of eschatological answers that Christianity or Buddhism gives to patients who are looking for meaning has, you know, certainly given countless patients, you know, hope and peace in the face of death. And so, um, so I, I do want to mention that, um, and uh, some slightly related to that is the something that I found very interesting about kind of the uh, the the way that spiritual care is understood by different uh, uh, by members of different religious groups. And so I found that basically spiritual care, the way that ideas about how it should be practiced, uh, do not differ that much along religious lines. So despite um, having its origins in Christian hospitals, you know, far from being some kind of colonizing Western import that has been imposed in Japan, uh, Buddhist chaplains are not at all hesitant to adopt models of spiritual care devel- developed by their Christian counterparts when it accords with their own vision for spiritual care. And likewise, uh, Christian chaplains in Japan are, you know, also work with their Buddhist counterparts. And so in my, um, in the chapter where I talk about spirituality, I actually give a whole bunch of diagrams um, of different Buddhists or Christian or, you know, 
academic um, understandings of what you know uh, spirituality is. And interestingly, some of the you know Christian diagrams and Buddhist diagrams are very similar. And then other very different ones are also Christian or Buddhist. And so there's really no, you know, Christian version of spiritual care or Buddhist version or anything like that. And so um, kind of like the hamburgers I mentioned earlier, far from being at uh, risk of uh, inventing something that no one is demanding, right? This, you know, giving a kind of a spiritual care that doesn't actually meet the, the needs of patients, I think spiritual care practitioners in Japan have really embraced uh, the ideas and practices about spiritual care, um, you know, that were developed in totally different cultural contexts, um, maybe, you know, Christian contexts in European or North American contexts. Um, and they're improvising on it, right? And they are, you know, helping create new versions of it and adapting it to, you know, the kind of the particularity of the needs of the patients, you know, that are in front of them. And some of those patients resemble, uh, you know, uh, people that we might meet in, you know, in the Philippines or, you know, in Brazil or, you know, in Canada or wherever. Um, and some of them are, you know, completely different. Right. And so, um, the, the question of where are we at is, you know, a very, very, you know, difficult one. Um, let me just say, um, as a kind of closing answer, uh, one hospice doctor, um, when I was asking her, like, so how do, you know, um, what are some of the, the patterns that you see in the way that um, patients face the end of life, you know, in terms of the spiritual concerns and so forth? And, you know, she told me, well, if I had 100 patients, um, they would all die in 100 different ways. Um, and so, <laughs> I mean, um, you know, this is always, we always end up, you know, coming to this kind of, um, you know, I don't want to undermine my my own thesis that there are some kind of particularities um, about the way that spiritual care is understood or practiced in Japan. But I mean, in the end, there there is um, we have to recognize that really it's it's um, it's very hard to 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 put it all into one book. <laughs> yeah, um, and and I, I appreciated the uh, the anecdote uh, that you shared and the explanation that you gave about the sort of. Uh, the, the, the nature of uh, the spirit and spiritual care in part because, you know, it resonated with the experience uh, that I had shared a little bit earlier about, um, you know, watching my father in hospice care as a, you know, essentially a non-religious person his entire life. What, what I saw, and of course I can't speak for him, but was somebody who needed social care, right? Because the, no matter how sort of explicitly religious or explicitly spiritual we are, we're all social beings. And one of the things that I found very interesting about um, the the book and the way that you talk about both your own experience um, and the practice of hospice care um, in Japan is that there's a there seems to be a great attention to the social being, mm -hmm. right, um, and to those questions of my relationships with the people I'm leaving behind. Whether that's I don't want to be a burden, a meiwaku to them now, or I want to you know find some closure in that sense, um, and whether I want to still have you know efficacy as an individual um, with in order to do that. And so there's all these questions that are you know social and about being alive even as you're dying, right? Um, and and about being that social uh, person and the the sort of the question about you know what comes next and what does that mean those 
are, are often quite different, um, you know, in some in, in interesting and important ways. And of course, there are fundamental similarities as well. But that you know, aspect of being a social, uh, a fundamentally social being, I think was mm. to me, the thing that, you know, underpins it all. Um, and I thought it was really interesting the way that came out both in the book, um, and the conversation. Uh, so I thought that was a, just a, for me, it, it resonated, as I said, and I thought it's a nice place to, um, wrap up. Um, but before we actually do that, I want to, uh, ask you, uh, what it is that you're researching now, uh, you have the, the book out, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, is this a, is this something that you're continuing with or do you have something new uh, that you're working on? Yeah. So um, one of the things I'm doing that's still kind of connected to this project is uh, trying to do a little bit more um, uh, unpacking of this concept of the Kokoro. And so um, actually in my research, when I was doing this uh, research, I didn't really, I wasn't really thinking about the kokoro at all. And it really came to me much later in the project when I was finishing it as I was going over my field notes again. And I just noticed that it kept coming up. And then, um, so uh, in a way, I didn't really have, uh, when I was actually doing the field work, I didn't have that kind of uh, keyword in my head at all. And so uh, in some ways, I wasn't really able to uh, kind of develop that idea in a kind of more theoretical way. And so one of the things I'm trying to do now as a kind of uh, postscript to this project is to, I'm writing an article right now about um, how to um, maybe understand the Kokoro a little bit better, uh, both within the context of spiritual care and also more uh, broadly within Japanese religion. So um, that's a, a small project I'm working on right now. Excellent. That sounds fascinating. Um, and I, I know that feeling of, you know, you, you go into the work without something front of mind and sort of discover it while you're there and need to need to work that out. So uh, I'm glad you're doing that. And I'll look forward to reading the article when it comes out. Um, but for now, just wanted to thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Oh, thank you. It's it was re- I really enjoyed it. So thank you very much.